Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to New Valley. My name's Scott, and I'm so glad that you're with us this morning, especially if this is your first Sunday or one of your first Sundays. We're just thrilled that you could be with us to worship. Uh, I want to give you a special invitation this morning for something we're doing this coming Wednesday. It is called First Wednesdays. We're going to do it the first Wednesday of every month. And it is for married couples who are uh, married without kids through uh, married couples with kids still in the home. So we could call it married with children, uh, but that, that was already kind of taken. Uh, and then also they have, uh, and then also we don't want to exclude younger couples who don't have kids yet. But yeah, this is a ministry to young couples, but young includes me, okay? So even the young at heart, if you have kids still in the home all the way through newlyweds, we would love to have you here on Wednesday night. We're going to have a dinner uh, starting at 5.45. And at 6.15, we'll have kids go back to the nursery. And at 6.30, we'll get started. I'm going to do some teaching on uh, practical issues in marriage. Uh, and last week or a month ago, we talked about expectations and how that's one of the big struggles in marriage. And we'll keep kind of unpacking those kind of practical subjects this Wednesday. We'd love to have you. It's important that you register, though, particularly if you have kids and for food. So you do not have to come to the meal uh, if you can't make it. If you can just get here at 6.30, then great. And if you come once, you're not committed to come for the rest of your life. Uh, it is just come when you can, and we want to be a blessing to you and, and strengthen your marriage and for, give you a chance to meet other people in the church. So please, please, please join us. This is a personal invitation from me to you. Come. Okay. Let's look today at Ma or excuse me, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We are studying the Gospel of Mark this year. Uh, we've been saying uh, this will be our steady diet uh, that we'll be turning to Mark throughout the year, and then we take breaks from, from time to time, like we did recently in taking some time off to do a series called Christ and Culture. Uh, but we are in the Gospel of Mark again up until Advent uh, to celebrate uh, the Christmas season. Next week, our new pastor, Pastor Caleb, is going to be preaching uh, on the passage that comes after this, and so please be here uh, to hear him uh, preach for the first time in our context, and uh, he is an outstanding preacher. You're going to be so blessed and uh, full of enthusiasm. It's going to be great. So, all right, today, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it to us right now. It's found in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen as well. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's say together, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So as we've been studying the first five chapters of Mark, we've seen this serious momentum building in Jesus' ministry. He has come and pronounced the presence of the kingdom of God, and he has proved its presence through his works, these mighty works that Mark is talking about, healings, 
exorcisms, calming storms, and bringing a daughter back to life, just as we saw last week. And the crowds in Capernaum, which is his home base, this fishing village where he first called disciples to himself, the crowds are growing there. People are believing in him. But today, we see an example of a hard-hearted, intense unbelief in Jesus. And we find it in his very own hometown. And through their lack of faith today, we will learn how important faith is in experiencing God's power in our own lives, the importance of faith. And so I want to look at two things today as we study this passage. First is the offense of the ordinary, and second is faith is the key to experiencing the gospel. The offense of the ordinary and how important faith is. It really is the key that unlocks the door not only to salvation but to experiencing Christ in the gospel. But first, the offense of the ordinary. So while people were putting their faith in Jesus he was offensive to many people. We know that, particularly the religious people today. The irony is, like, the pastors and the priests and the shepherds of Israel uh, are the ones who are primarily rejecting Jesus. And, and we see that in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees, who are the conservatives, and the Herodians, the cultural liberals, liberals at the time, made their plans to work together to destroy Jesus. And Jesus came into his hometown, and it was his custom that he would preach in the synagogue. So he's going back to Nazareth, where he grew up. And just as he'd done in Capernaum and just as he uh, has done in other places, he is going to go to the synagogue. And it was customary for any Jewish male, but particularly those who are learned, to stand up and to speak or preach on a text. And that's what he did. And Mark tells us that the people were astonished. And that's a word that Mark uses a lot. Mark uses a lot of uh, intense emphatic words and hyperbole in a sense. And it's, I can relate to that because I am constantly being accused of doing the same thing. <laughs> They're astonished, but not in a positive way. Where did this man get these things from? Where did his wisdom and power come from? So they recognize on the one hand that he has power, that he has wisdom, that he has authority, but they're confounded by it. How did he get this stuff? And what was so offensive about that? You'd think there'd be like this hometown pride, like one of our own is, is killing it. <laughs> I mean, he's raising people from the dead. He's, he's healing people. He's teaching with such authority and power, but they're, they're, not, they're not impressed. Instead, they're offended. Jesus grew up in this town, and he was a carpenter. And they say to themselves, isn't this the carpenter? He grew up working class, the son of a carpenter, blue collar. And there's no offense, even in that culture of being a carpenter. That's good, honest work. But the offense was to think that you would ever quit being a carpenter. If you're born into a trade, you would be uh, trained by your father in that trade, and you would continue in that, and you would never aspire to be a, a rabbi, for example. You would never aspire to go beyond what your heredity gave you. They asked themselves, is not this the carpenter's son, the son of Mary? And, and isn't that James right there? I mean, we know these guys. That's James. There's Joseph, Judas, Simon. These are all brothers of Jesus. And aren't those his sisters? We know these people. Who is he to come in here saying he's the Messiah? This is so strange. This is a small town, and everybody knows everybody's business. And they call Jesus the son of Mary. And for us, 
we think, of course. He's the son of God, son of Mary. We love Mother Mary, you know, this godly woman, his mother. Like, of course, son of Mary. But to them, it was a slur. No one was ever called the son of their mother. They were always called the son of their father. It was a slur. They did not call him Jesus bar Joseph, son of Joseph. Instead, they call him Jesus, the son of Mary. And what they're saying is this. We remember. We remember when your mom and dad got married. And we did the math because you were born about five or six months after you got married, and it didn't add up. Your mom got pregnant out of wedlock. And we're never, ever, ever going to let you forget it. His, hotel, his hometown rejected him. What's fascinating to me is his extended family rejected him. You know, cousins, aunt, uncles, aunts. And even his mother and his brothers at first rejected him. Of course, not later, but at first. And in this case, especially these hometown people, it's his ordinariness that is the problem. It's the offense. And, and imagine, though, just to give them a break for a second, imagine that somebody you went to high school with uh, came to your church one day and said, hey, everyone, I literally am the culmination of the entire Bible. <laughs> Everything you've been reading from Genesis to, through the minor prophets and the major prophets and the Psalms, it's all about me. <laughs> and you'd be like, we played football together, Jesus. Are you crazy? I ate with you in the cafeteria. Like, I, we were in the same homeroom class. You can't be the Messiah. That's too weird, right? I know your brother, James. I've been at your house for dinner. It was their ordinariness. It was Jesus' ordinariness, his embodiment, his incarnation that they couldn't get past. The fact that he was ordinary, that he was a man. Now, I lived, uh, when I grew up, uh, in high school, I lived in a small town uh, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, like 15,000 uh, people total. So when I went away to college at Purdue, there was about 32,000 students. So it was like, I doubled just on campus the number of people that I live with. So I grew up in a small town. I was born in, in the same town that I went to college, in a smaller town. So while I was in college, though, I lived in a fraternity, and there was this guy in our house named Stuart. And Stuart and his family were also from Lafayette, Indiana. And he was really into music, Stuart was, and he was excited to learn that I played guitar. And he asked me to help him learn some chords on the guitar and that kind of thing, and I was happy to do it. Um, he kept telling me, though, and the other fraternity brothers about his brother that was in this band. And he kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. I'm like, dude, my brother's in this band. And he didn't quite talk like this, but kind of did. Uh, you know, in L.A. And they're going to make it, man. They're going to be huge. They're going to be absolutely huge. And as he would say this, I'd be like, uh-huh. Yeah, I bet they are. They're going to be huge, aren't they? <laughs> and then one day, Stuart's brother's band came out with their first album. And it was called Appetite for Destruction. It was kind of big, like really big, like 30 million copies sold so far, big. And all of a sudden, there is Stuart's brother on MTV, and we're blown away. Stuart's brother was named Bill, Bill Bailey, but his stage name is Axel, Axel Rose. 
his brother is Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses. And many of you love GNR. Like to you, they are, they're among your rock heroes, right? And, and they are, they can be that for you. But for me, I've never, and I, lo- I like to listen to Guns N' Roses, but the mystery has always been tarnished for me because I know Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, yeah, but this is Stuart's brother, and you look just like him. And yeah, I just, I can't. You know, my rock heroes are, are Paul McCartney and Johnny Cash and Jimmy Page and Sting and Bono, and I could go on and on. And they never had families. They didn't grow up in places. They <laughs> descended from heaven and just <laughs> departed their, imparted their rock, gift of rock, Right? It was the ordinariness of Stuart that made me go, eh, I just can't get into the hype. Are you offended by the ordinariness of the gospel? Because it's, in some senses, it is very ordinary. Meaning, maybe you yawn at the goodness of this message because you've heard it so much, and it's just become so ordinary. Yeah, yeah, God loves me. Yes, there's this sovereign God. He created all things. He created the universe. And yet, even in his power and sovereignty, in the mystery of the reality that he created this universe that we can't even get our mind around. Like, I love uh, documentaries about space and time and stuff I really don't understand, like black holes. But what I'm encouraged by is no one really fully understands them. You know, dark matter. This is so fascinating to me because of the vastness of the universe, and our God created that. And yet, he loves us. And if you come here much, we're going to tell you about how much God loves you and how much God has forgiven you in Jesus. And, and after a while, that can become very, very ordinary. But should it really be ordinary? And Jesus himself is an embodied person. He became fully man. God, who is fully God, became fully man, and sometimes we're offended by his ordinariness. Maybe it's the ordinariness of Christians that really bothers you. Maybe Christians themselves are a stumbling block. But Jesus is the incarnation of God, God in the flesh. But I I encourage you to, to think about Does the gospel still have the power to thrill you? Does the the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you have the ability to still enthrall you, to inspire you to have faith instead of unbelief like these people in his hometown? The next thing that I want us to see is this interesting part of this passage, this short passage where it's very clear that faith is very, very important to Jesus. Faith is the key to experiencing the gospel, he says. The people of Jesus' hometown were so hardened in unbelief that Mark says that Jesus could perform no mighty works there. But then immediately, Mark goes on to tell us that he did lay hands on a few people and heal them of their disease. I think that's pretty mighty, (laughs) right? But we'll give Mark a break because we know what he means. But to me... If any one of you like laid your hands on someone and they got healed instantly, I'd be like, that's a mighty work. But we get his point. Mary Healy goes on to say, she's uh, a theologian and, and commentator that I've been reading, and she says, it's not that Jesus' power is limited, but people are hindered from experiencing his power by their refusal to believe in him. The people are astonished that a local boy has such wisdom and power and authority 
And instead of receiving that it could be from God, they're just offended. They are astounded. And so is Jesus, it says, that he marveled at their unbelief. And I guess so. He just raised a young 12-year-old girl from the dead. And yet they cannot receive him as God. Normally people have marveled at Jesus' teaching in a good way, but this time they marvel at, at Jesus' marveling in their unbelief. They had no faith. And kind of the main thing I want us to see this morning is this, that faith is not only the key that unlocks the door to salvation, and it obviously is, it is also the key that unlocks the door for you and I who have been following Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus. It's the key to experiencing the gospel in our everyday life, and it's often the reason why we don't experience. Faith is the key to salvation. It's the first step in coming a Christian, in becoming a Christian. And it's also the key to grow as a Christian, to experience the gospel in your everyday life. Faith. It's not that God's power is ever limited. Hear that. It, God is sovereign. He's a king. Jesus is king. He's ushering in a kingdom. There is no lack in his authority. There's never a lack in his power, or authority, or abilities. But God is pleased with faith. God is pleased with faith. God's character is such that when faith is not present, he is often not pleased to act, ordinarily chooses not to reveal himself and to demonstrate his power and goodness to those who refuse to believe. Hebrews 11.6 says this. This is a very popular passage. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's the first step in becoming a, a, a Christian. It's the first step to say, I believe certain things about Jesus, which we'll unpack in just a minute. And, and I also believe that I need him, that I am broken, fallen, sinful, and, and placing my hope and trust in him. In Mark 4, as the storm raged and the waves crashed over the boat, Jesus said, why are you so afraid and why do you have such little faith to the disciples? With the woman with the issue of blood that we talked about last week, he tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then the father whose daughter who, who had died, he, he told Jairus, don't fear, believe. So I want to unpack faith a little bit more today because Jesus says it's critical it's not only the way that we enter the kingdom by faith through grace alone. It is also so important to our day-to-day -day life. And so I want to talk about what it is. And so quick, quick lesson on faith. The first thing I want to say is that faith is a gift. It says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's, it's all grace. By grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When talking about the importance of faith, there are times that we uh, can tend to explain it in such a way that it sounds like it's the one work that we have to do. Like, it's all grace. It's 99.9% .9 grace, but you have to have faith. And so if you're responsible for that, creating that, maintaining that, having enough of it, then basically it can become like a work. But And I, this is paradoxical, and we can have this philosophical discussion someday, but I just want you to see that even our faith, in a sense, Paul says, is a gift. It's grace. It's not a work so that we can boast and say, I have more faith than you have. 
And so rather than, like, yeah, like I said, just have this huge philosophical argument in your head, receive that it's this gracious gift that God has given us. Um, it's a gift. The next thing I want us to see is it's a lifelong journey. Faith is a lifelong journey. We realize that faith is not just a one-time experience. Like it, it, to become a follower of Jesus, you must have faith, right? But that's not something that happens at a fixed point. And then, and then now I have faith and now uh, it never waxes or wanes. Like I've got faith and I'm just going to always have faith. The truth is uh, my experience of my faith has been somewhat like my experience with the stock market, which is like, man, sometimes it's high and sometimes it's pretty low. And it ebbs and it flows. And, but over time, my faith increases not because I'm so filled with faith, but because God is so faithful to me that my faith in him has grown in its trust more and more and more. Faith is not a one-time experience. Instead, it's a lifelong journey whereby God continues to prove his faithfulness to us as we grow to trust him more and more and more. We have faith, and yet we also wrestle with unbelief. The other time that the word unbelief is used in the Gospel of Mark, it's in chapter 9, when the father of a boy who has an unclean spirit says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? It's a lifelong journey of learning to trust God. And so some of you I know worry, like, do I have faith? I know, I know sometimes my faith is strong, sometimes it's weak, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. I want you to hear and understand that is normal, but God keeps proving his faithfulness to us, and part of the journey is learning to trust him more and more and more. Faith is a gift. Faith is a lifelong journey. Third, faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christian faith is. It's in the person of Jesus Faith must have an object. We put our faith in someone or something because we believe in that person or thing. When you sit down in a chair, every single time you do it, when you, you, you all did that, I can see none of you are standing hardly at all. And so, uh, a few of you, so, but every, everyone else, you saw a chair and you said, that chair looks reasonable to me. I think it can hold me. Uh, and you, you like thought all this through, right? No, no. I mean, intuitively, you're like, there's a chair. I'm going to sit in it. But you put faith that I'm going to sit on this. And in spite of the law of gravity, I'm not going to go to the floor because this chair can hold me. It's in an object. We don't believe in belief. We don't have faith in faith. And yet I feel like that in our culture, that's often the way we're talking about it. Just have faith. Just believe. Just pray. Pray to who? Believe in what? Faith in who? Christian faith is not just, oh, I have faith and I believe in the mystery of the universe and spirituality and that kind of thing and, and I'm just going to pray and throw prayers out into the goodness of the universe. Christian faith is in the person of Jesus. And by the way, there is only one type of person on planet Earth. And it's people who have faith. Everyone has faith. Faith in something. Faith in yourself. Faith in money. If I just had more, my life would be so much better. Faith in sex. Faith in science. Faith in having a good family. Faith in friends, kids, success, materialism, health. If I could just lose 10 pounds, if I could just work out harder, if I could just reach this one rep max, if I could do this, if I could do this. Faith. My life will be so much better. If I just have this thing, 
what are we supposed to believe about Jesus? What does it mean to, to put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus? What is Christian faith? The gospel is, isn't just a list of rules or propositions, but it's in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, who in his very nature is God. He became a man, and he did that to fill up this enormous gap that exists between who God is and his holiness and his character, his, his complete righteousness, and where we currently stand after the fall in our brokenness and in our sin and our selfishness, our pride and our rebellion. That has created an enormous distance between us and God. And Jesus, the person of Jesus, came to break down that distance. Religion also talks about filling up the gap between those two things, but it always relies on our behavior. You can't be accepted until you perform and keep the rules enough. That's what religion says. And you say, well, Christianity is a religion. And yes, of course, it's one of the world religions, but it's different than every other world religion because the message of Christianity is not, hey, there's a stairway to heaven and you better start climbing. Instead, it's, there's a stairway from heaven and Jesus came down from that stairway in order that we may one day be with him and rule and reign in the kingdom that he's going to be bringing in. God coming to earth rather than us trying to achieve it. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for those who would place their faith or their trust or their hope in his glorious gift of himself, unmerited, unearned by us. Everything we needed to do to satisfy God, Jesus did that. And I literally just feel like this sense of calmness come over me as I said that phrase. Everything we needed to do to satisfy God, Jesus did for us. He died the death we should have died so that we would never be condemned by God. Romans 3, 23 through 26. He lived the life we should have lived and can never live. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So that God would regard us as blameless in his own sight, and he does. And this may be one of the most difficult things to have faith and to trust and believe in. Because of what Jesus did as a substitute, those who trust in him and receive his free gift can truly say, as far as God is concerned, everything that's true about Jesus is true of me. Loved, accepted, adopted, brought in. We're heirs with God because of Jesus Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. Not on account of our goodness, not on account of our righteousness, not on account of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. And everything that should separate us from God, it all fell on Jesus. And, and so he got what I deserve, and there's this crazy second part of this, in that in Christ, you get what he deserves. You're given the gift of his righteousness. God regards us as no longer cursed, under the curse of sin, but his sons and his daughters because of what Jesus did. He loves us. And the next thing I want us to see about faith is, so faith is in, in a person. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection. It's not in ourselves. It's not in my ability to please God. It's not in my ability to earn it. It's in Christ. And then finally, though, for those of us that already believe that, faith is found in the everyday details of life. And this is kind of what's going on with these people in, in, in Nazareth. 
So I believe in Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as King. And these are all theological concepts, right? My head, like I believe these things are true. I believe in the resurrection. I confess the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I can keep going and impress you. But anyway, I believe these things about Jesus. But where I struggle to believe is in everyday life in practical matters, is God able to handle the details of my life? Living by faith every day in the ups and the downs of life, work, stress, family, unmet expectations. I expected this to be true of me at this age. I expected this to have happened to me already. I thought I would be married. I thought we would have kids by now. I thought I would be successful in this career. Etc. 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 I never expected to be sick. When our boys were little, they were scared to jump into the pool. When we first moved here, we we're like, we've got, we, we just moved little to the hot place. We've got to have a pool, and so we bought a house with a pool. And thank goodness, there are a couple pools in the area. So. Uh, and, and, and I would get in the pool, like most of you parents have done, and I would ask them to jump into my arms, right? And they were scared to do it. They all eventually did it, but in doing so, they had to have faith in me. And there was like head knowledge, like uh, he's physically capable of catching us. <laughs> They're able to intuit that and see that, like, and, and there's, like, I believe he can catch me. Uh, I believe uh, he's able to do that. There's some head knowledge, but then there's even more. There's heart. Like, do I trust him to not, like, let me drown? Like, he's able to do this, but will he follow through? Will he catch me? Does he love me enough to catch me? And then there's just the whole just physical fear of, like, I believe all this stuff. My heart trusts him, and my head says it's okay, but I've got to do it. I've got to jump, Right? And what I believe God is asking us to do is combine what we know about God in our head and confront the stuff that's going on in our heart and to jump and to trust him. And not once, like every day, multiple times a day. And <laughs> she just mentioned the Enneagram, uh, she being Amanda in the announcements. The Enneagram is just a personality test, basically, that, that explains uh, personality. It's another personality profile. We found it to be helpful to understand yourself better, to understand people you live with, understand how they're wired. I'm, I am an Enneagram 8, which means I'm a jerk. <laughs> Read it. You'll, you'll agree. But I'm a nice one, okay? So, uh, and because of just sort of how I'm wired, and you can, I don't know why I'm wired this way, I just am, I need to stop all the time. I'm trying to get to the place where I do this, and I don't always, but just to stop and say, life doesn't have to be this intense, man. <laughs> like, I can, I can chill out a little bit I, because I don't have to walk around so high strung. I have to constantly remind myself I'm not in control. I don't have to worry about everything. I don't have to be in control of everything. I can't control anyone. I have a hard time controlling myself. How, could, how can I possibly think I can control you? my family members, or, or some person that I'm trying to help. We need to experience faith. We need to live it out. How would you know when we're not necessarily living by faith in any given moment? Well, for me, and I think for you too, it's the presence of inordinate fear 
We all have fear. We all have anxiety. I'm talking about, and I don't mean crazy levels either, but just kind of the presence of inordinate fear, anxiety, worry, anger, control regarding our circumstances in life. And when we find ourselves filled with anger, fear, anxiety, worry, the sense of I've got to manage this, I've got to control this, it's good to stop and say, why am I so worried? Why am I so anxious? Why do I have to manage this? I do believe in my head at least that there is a sovereign God who cares about me. One of my closest friends in the area is a, is a fellow baseball dad, and he's Jewish. He's not a Christian. He doesn't share our faith in Jesus, but he's a, he's a, Jew, a Jewish brother. And he, he and I were in the car one day, and I was sharing with him just how uh, stressed out I was. I'm going on and on and on about my anxiety and my stress and my work, and I've got this going on. And he goes, gee, it's too bad that you don't have some resource, some person that you trust in outside of yourself that could help you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I am a pastor. I am a Christian. Yes, I can believe in these things, but are you actually working it out? And he was right. He was exactly right. It's one thing to believe these things in your head. It's another thing to go, therefore, God has this situation in my marriage. Therefore, I can breathe a little easier about work, finances, my future, my health, whatever it is. But are you? But are you? The thing I want us to see, it'll be on the, on the screen. Faith is not only the key that unlocks the door to salvation, it's the key that unlocks the door to experiencing the gospel in your everyday life. And we have to fight for that. We are taught by ourselves and by everything in our culture that it's all up to us. We have to manage. We have to control. We have to do it. And if you're going to live by faith, you're going to have to catch yourself more than like once a week at church, right? You're going to have to learn to integrate this more and more, stopping throughout your day and just saying, wait a minute, it's too bad I don't have a resource of faith or trust in someone outside of myself that's sovereign, that's all-powerful. And this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. What are you worrying about right now? And I'm not saying it's small. It may be enormous. How are you comparing yourself to somebody else right now? Why are you doing that? Keep asking yourself why until you get to the bottom of the answer. Maybe you have to ask it five times. Well, this. Okay, why? Well, this. Why? Be like a little kid. Why? 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 Until you get down to the bottom. Well, I don't trust God. What are you angry about? Really? Why do you blow up so much? Oh, I'm not angry. Really? Do you find yourself grumbling in your heart? Do you find yourself being jealous of others and their circumstances? Most of us don't wrestle with belief in God intellectually in our head Yes, he's God. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's king. Yes, he's savior. But where we wrestle is, is he good? In my heart, do I trust that he's good? Does he have me in mind? Does he love me? Does he care? Does he, does he listen when I pray? Faith in his goodness in spite of circumstances and learning to lean into that reality moment by moment is the key to experiencing the gospel. And friends, this is kind of what our church is dedicated to.
helping one another. In our study of God's word, this is the key. There are important things, learning yourself, your Enneagram, all that good stuff, like learning your personality. That's all helpful tools, but nothing, nothing surpasses learning God's word, learning to meditate in God's word, having it speak to you, speak to your heart about who you are and whose you are. Learning through God's word, meditating on God's word. We are here as a community to help us learn to walk in the gospel day by day. That's what our small groups are about. It's what our community is about. It's about everything we do is to learn to walk with Jesus and to trust him more in the details of our life. Let's step out in faith this week. Our father is standing there with arms open wide saying, jump. Let's jump. Let's trust him with that thing that we're fearful about. Let's trust him with that thing that's driving our anger. Let's trust him with that thing that's dividing our relationship. Let's jump into his loving arms this week, whatever it is. Take some risk. Jump. Trust your Father. He's good. He knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, your, your arms are open. You're calling us to walk in faith and to trust you. We've trusted you many times, but there are many ways in which we still have unbelief. Lord, help our hearts in our unbelief. Help us to come to you by faith, trusting, loving you, knowing you, walking with you, experiencing you, your goodness, your kindness. And that thing, every one of us has not just a thing, but probably 10, but Lord, is that one thing that's coming to our minds right now? Would you help us to trust, to let go, and just to jump into your arms? To feel your embrace in your strength, in your might, in your power, that you have us in your arms no matter what we face. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.